Alleluia. Now, while you're still, while you're still standing, I want to take a picture of you because you look so great. <laughs> smile. Choir, smile. My commu- our communication team thanks you. I thank you. Happy Easter. Please have a seat. I just want to say it is great to be with you on this Resurrection Sunday. We especially love that we have the youngest among us in our midst. And if they or any of you get restless during this service, you can get up and walk around or go to rocking chairs or over here in the chapel. It's all good. Let us say a prayer together. God of resurrection, we give thanks for this day, for the reminders it brings. We come here to claim, along with Mary and Peter and the disciples, that the stone is indeed rolled away and the tomb is empty. So we ask that you would take us into a new day and that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts might be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I am quite aware, as are most of you, that this Easter falls on April Fool's Day. Hasn't done that since 1945. And it made me curious about the history of April Fool's and this celebration, which it's a little unclear how it got started. It's probably various traditions that came together. But the one that caught my interest is the idea that around the 16th century, The people of Western Europe changed their calendars from the Julian system, instituted by Julius Caesar, to the Gregorian system, instituted by the Catholic Church. You see, the new year used to start around this time of year, when the flowers started budding again and the green shoots came up through the ground shortly after the vernal equinox. But they changed it to start in January, and the people who didn't get the memo were played jokes on by other people. They were made into being April fools because they thought the new year still started now. Last year on April 1st, it was a Saturday, and I was home recovering from surgery, checking my email. An email came through from our Journey to Adulthood class that they had a special gift they wanted to give me in thanksgiving for my ministry and for their relationship to this church. One of their teachers had started making a craft of hand puppets out of cat hair. I've known other people who've done such things, so I wasn't surprised by this. I didn't know one of our teachers was doing this. They wanted to make me a liturgical stole completely out of cat hair. They assured me that it would be washed and carded and hypoallergenically treated, and it would be very handsome, and if they just let me know what I'd like, they'd get right to it. I was recovering from surgery, a little bit freaked out by this, and I, uh, I was thinking this was a pastoral crisis. How do I respond authentically and pastorally to this lovely gift? I sent urgent emails out to my colleagues and asking them what we should do, and finally someone had the good sense to say, do you understand what date it is today? That's right. So I came here fully expecting to get a cat hair stole. Instead, I had a papier-mâché tomb in front of my door and a facsimile of the Shroud of Turin on my coffee table, which we are calling the Shroud of Brookline. It makes me think about 
what kind of foolishness this kind of day is for us who are Christians. It makes me think about what it means to be a fool for God. Paul wrote about this in his letters to the church of Corinth. He said, don't deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all of these things are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. I'm aware that for those of us who are post-enlightenment, 21st century, highly empirical, rational people, the idea of the bodily resurrection has a hard time jiving for us. This is the constant struggle many of us come to when we come to this day. And I imagine if we had been in the first century or even the 10th or even the early part of the 20th, we wouldn't have wrestled with that as much. It would have been an important story for us to tell. What I say to you today is I'm less concerned about the factuality of the bodily resurrection. I certainly don't deny it. But I will tell you it is not central to the reason I follow Jesus. What I'll tell you is I'm more interested in how that resurrection lives in our bodies. Because I'm aware that nearly 2,000 years later, we are still telling this story. And the Roman Empire is no longer The Pharisees are no longer. The esteemed authorities of those days, who we talk about during Passion Week, the high priest Caiaphas, the local Roman governor Pontius Pilate, the paranoid King Herod, they have have all become a thing of the past. And the only reason you and I know about them is because of their relationship with Jesus. If it weren't for him, we wouldn't know about them at all. If it weren't for the resurrection... And the story we've been telling for 2,000 years, we wouldn't know about them at all. In fact, none of you would be here today. And yet we gather again in the presence of the cross, of the Last Supper, of these Alleluia's chanting on our lips. And while we don't have the Roman Empire or the Pharisees anymore, I'm aware that in the great drama of human history, the cast may have changed, but the roles haven't. We make it a point in this congregation during Holy Week to understand very clearly that we do not go from the exuberant, crazy, palm processional of last Sunday, in which we had children and unicycles and all sorts of frivolity going on here, straight to the resurrection of Easter and this exuberance and this overflowing crowd without going through Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday in between. On Monday, Thursday, I feel incumbent to always remind us on Easter, we gather and we wash feet in there as Jesus washed his disciples' feet and hands. We gather around here in groups of 12 to recreate the intimacy. We huddle together in a much smaller number than we have here today to remember the fear, the denial of Peter, the betrayal of Judas, selling his friend for a few pieces of coins. And at the end of that service, as we strip the altar, we drop coins into metal bowls so we can hear that clanging sound of money over relationship. And this year, we're giving it to a program called Jobs Not Jails, 
that helps incarcerated people get reacclimated into the world after they leave incarceration. On Good Friday, we have made the habit the last three years to make sure that we hear Jesus' seven last words on the cross as they reverberate in the modern news, in contemporary images. So this year, we showed a picture of white supremacists in Charlottesville for the words, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. We showed 10 of Florida's death row inmates, part of the nearly 3,000 in this country, for the prisoner who was hung next to Jesus' right, to whom he said, Today you will see me in paradise. We showed members of a house of faith in Chicago sheltering an undocumented Mexican woman and her eight-year-old son for people who are doing this across the country, even here in Brookline, defying government policies in order to keep families together and people's lives vital for the words, Mary, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. We showed a picture of men walking through the destruction and devastation of Aleppo, Syria, carrying bruised and broken babies for the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We showed women and girls hauling water across parched earth in India, part of the millions of women and girls who walk six miles or more a day for water for Jesus' words of I thirst. And finally, we showed the lethal injection chamber and gallery at San Quentin Penitentiary for Jesus' words, it is finished. And when he said, into your hands I commend my spirit, we showed the thousands who showed up for the vigil in Parkland, Florida on February 15th. You and I, many people around the world, inhabit a Good Friday kind of world, which makes it even more important that we are resurrection fools. For many of us in this room, I'm not sure if we occupy a Good Friday world, but more of a Monday, Thursday world, a world in which we're afraid, when we're feeling denied and betrayed, in which we're fearful that things might get worse. And indeed, they might. Some of us wonder if we are hearkening back to 1965 and the days of agitation when people have to stand up and speak for what they believe in. Others wonder if we're going back to 1933, in which there is fear of brute force in the air. Some of us wonder if we're going back to the 1890s and the Gilded Age as the gap between rich and poor grows larger and larger. And so my question is, if you and I are to live the resurrection in our bodies, what might it look like? And how will we carry ourselves and those we love into the joy of Easter Day? I have just one example I want to offer you, but a few more you might consider. You see, it's important to us in this church that each week we have a confession of sin. The reason being that all of us mess up every week in some way or another. It's part of being human. And rather than let sin bash us around the heads and make us feel bad about ourselves, we claim it as a part of our identity. But we're also aware that we are caught up in systems of oppression and violence beyond our control in some part. By the clothes we wear that have slave laborers, or the food we eat that gouges farmers in other parts of the world, or the energy we consume that is taking apart the earth entrusted to us. About 30 years ago, my brother-in-law and a couple of his friends wondered what they could do to address the second of these problems, the fact that the coffee we buy as well as the sugar and the cocoa, gouges farmers around the world. 
And so they decided to come up with a project in which they would start buying directly from those farmers, cutting out the middle people, and selling the coffee to people in the first world of the United States. They wanted to do it as a private business model, but also a nonprofit mission. It was viewed as utopian, and at worst, people regarded it as foolish. As they went around trying to find investors for their first $100,000 to make this company start up, many people said, it's a nice idea, but it's not going to work. They wanted it to be a social change organization. They wanted to be a group that would educate consumers. They wanted it to be high-quality food that would nourish the body as well as the soul. They wanted it to be a company controlled by the people who actually did the work. They wanted it to be a community dedicated to honesty, respect, and mutual benefits. Their first product was Cafe Nica, coming from Nicaragua. And at the time, during the Reagan administration, there was an embargo on anything from Nicaragua. And so they got around it by roasting the beans in Holland and later in Canada. But they went through many trade battles with U.S. Customs, trying to get that coffee to consumers, trying to help the local farmers. Eventually, they went through that fight. They were aided by the Adrian Dominican Sisters of the Roman Catholic Church and Lutheran World Relief Service. They eventually went into 10,000 faith communities across this nation, including this community, long before I came here. The coffee you will drink from us today comes from Equal Exchange Coffee, one of the leaders in fair trade. They moved on to cocoa and sugar and other products, and six years ago, their sales hit $50 million. Now, that's not the impressive figure. The impressive figure are the millions of dollars they gave to farmers, helping them empower their lives. They took an inextricable problem of sin, a Monday, Thursday, Good Friday kind of problem, and they became resurrection fools despite what people told them and made it work. And you and I participate in that work today. I look across the news and I see a bunch of 16, 17, and 18-year-olds who perhaps out of naive confidence are bringing leaders of this country to bear to face facts, and to listen to the cries of anguish. And you can see what's happening as these fearless, young, poised, articulate people are making politicians run scared like Pilate and Herod, scared for their professional lives, trying to discount these children as fools, saying they are infected with arrogance and boasting. And yet last Saturday, we saw more than a million people across this country gathering against violence against hate, calling for safety, and calling to bear a lobbying organization that actually acts as a domestic terrorist group. Resurrection fools working in the world of Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. It happened in the civil rights movement as people faced those hoses again and again and stood up to intractable, bigoted people. They were resurrection fools who believed in Easter. It happened in South Africa as people went across the international boundaries who challenged people in nonviolent protests, singing all the while. They were resurrection fools. And I believe that any time we help a child grow up with confidence and love, it is a resurrection fool moment. Any time we help someone in need, it is a resurrection fool moment. You see, you and I are called to be resurrection fools in small ways and big ways. My friends, 
family of God. I believe that as long as you and I live, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday will be alive in the world. There will be terror and injustice. There will still be cruel, incompetent, and downright evil political leaders across the globe. There will be greed and money-grubbing, seeking to strangle our systems of justice and fair elections. But I'm here to tell you the news that the tomb is empty. And people who are in power run scared. The stone has been rolled away. And you and I are called to stride confidently into a new day, knowing that the God of love, the God of resurrection, compels us to do so, calls on us to be her co-workers for building the kingdom of heaven here in the world, calls on us to make creative, loving, life-changing differences wherever and however we are able, to make this place as it is in heaven. Nothing more is required of us and nothing less is acceptable as we walk away from the garden. Let us make it so. Amen.